integrating both plant and animal products is ideal from a from a cognitive and mental health standpoint. Hey, Dr. Mindy here, and welcome to season four of the Resetter Podcast. Have I got a lineup for you this season? Lots of deep thinkers, lot of brilliant minds, all with one focus to move the needle forward on your mental and physical health. So please know that this podcast is all about empowering you to believe in yourself again. And I want you believing in your body. I want you believing in your mind. I want you believing in your spirit. If you have a passion for learning, if you're looking to be in control of your health and take your power back, this is the podcast for you. Enjoy. Okay, Resetters, let's talk about breaking your fast. So as you guys know, I love Organifi's products, and I really love them for two reasons. The quality of the ingredients and how incredible these products taste. And each time I try a new product, I literally feel like they have knocked it out of the park in both of those categories. So I have a new one for you to try breaking your fast with, and it's called Pure, and it's for mental clarity and digestion. And check this out. If you haven't heard of the concept of a nootropic, a nootropic is any nutrient that's going to enhance your cognitive abilities. And in Pure, one of the main ingredients is lion's mane, which not only gives you great mental focus, but a very calm and alert mental focus. But they didn't really stop there. They put a bunch of digestive enzymes in there, so it will calm your belly down. This is great for those of you with either constipation issues or bloatedness. So they've got these great digestive enzymes in it. And I, I really think they should be calling this the Faster's Dream product because they put apple cider vinegar in it, which will help with balancing blood sugar. So, and it tastes great. So go ahead and check it out. It's called Pure, and you can, we'll put the link in the notes. You can go to Organifi.com forward slash Pels. That is Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash Pels, P-E-L-Z, and they will give you 20% off. So check it out and let me know how smart you get and how low your blood sugar goes. I'm so excited to share this product with you. Okay, we're going to just jump right into this. So um, let me just start off by thanking you for, for coming to my podcast. I appreciate you having me on yours. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Yeah. And you know, it's really funny. I, I, since I've been out in the world talking about fasting, whenever I talk about food, People are like, oh, oh, you 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 think of food in, in this high way, like you actually talk about food. And it's like, I don't think of them as polar opposites. I actually think of them as complements to each other. So when I dove into your research, which I've been following you for years, and your appreciation of food and, and the way that you've used food as healing, I'm th- that is such a beautiful marriage to what I'm trying to educate the world on fasting. So I want to start off with, with like, how did you even get involved in the art of food and the healing power of food? Yeah, for me, I mean, my why, it all comes back to my mom. And, um, you know, I didn't go to medical school. I'm not a medical, I, n- I never misrepresent myself. I think that's the most important um, thing here. It's that I'm, I, I've always been incredibly transparent and honest, and I aspire to always be that way about my, my intentions and, and how I landed here. 
on your show. And it, for me, it goes back to the fact that my mom at a young age was diagnosed with a, a rare form of dementia called Lewy body dementia. Mm. And I didn't have dementia, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, none of those terms in my lexicon at that time. I had always been interested in fitness and nutrition and, and supplementation from more of a, a body composition standpoint. Mm. Um, and I did start college on a pre-med track. That's just, you know, to indicate how or to illustrate how passionate about those topics I was. But ultimately, I thought my, you know, my that ship had sailed for me. I ended up becoming a journalist and working um, in the United States on a TV network that mm. was owned by Al Gore for many years. I did that. And then in my personal life, in around the year 2011, my mom started to show the earliest symptoms of this of this niche form of dementia. And I was in between jobs at the moment. And so that gave me the ability to go with her to different doctor's appointments. Mm. And I'm also the oldest child in the family. I'm the mm. firstborn. I've always had an incredibly close with uh, relationship with my mom. And so I started going with her to doctor's visits because, you know, and we talked about this when you were on my show, when you are sick, you are thrust into a hypervigilant fight or flight so state. True. And for somebody who's like not really that, well-versed in health and and kind of not, you know, not not native to the internet like my mom was. Um, it's a very frustrating and, and alienated place to live. Yes. And, and it becomes hard to advocate for yourself. And and also people, I think, of, you know, I'm I'm a millennial. I think I think my generation in particular feels very empowered to question authority and to mm-hmm quote unquote, do one's own research. Mm -hmm. But my mom's generation, like, I I don't think that was the case for the average person. And so when you, when a, when a, you know, a woman of the baby boomer generation presents to a doctor and they get a a diagnosis, that's it. I mean, that's like gospel, you know, Mm -hmm. the advice from the doctor is gospel, right? As long as they have those credentials after their, after their name. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, writing off doctors or, or the practice of medicine, nothing like that. But Um, It was a very scary place for her to be. And so I started going with her as her wing person. Mm. And we were, we went from doctor's visit to doctor's visit, really not getting any clear sense of a diagnosis. And we actually had to take a trip to the Cleveland Clinic. Mm. And that was where for the first time she was uh, prescribed drugs for both Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. Oh, wow. And that was an incredibly traumatic week Um, for me. It was the first time in my life I'd ever had a panic attack. And Mm. her health continued to decline over the years. and, And she passed away in 2018. But seeing that, seeing how unwell she was and, and really experiencing true sickness. I mean, to me, there's, there's no greater motivating force in the world to, to try to understand everything you possibly can mm-hmm. about the diet and lifestyle factors that might have predisposed her to that. So it was at once to understand, to see if there was anything from a therapeutic standpoint that could be done to help her. But then also I realized, and this is, of course, not something that any doctor brought up, I thankfully had the 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 foresight to to recognize that I now for the first time had a risk factor myself. And so it became Ooh. about prevention. Like Ooh. I could very easily develop what it was that my mom developed and I didn't want that to happen. So right. I just went down a research rabbit hole and I started reading anything that I could get my hands on. Research paper after research paper. I was like, you know, losing sleep every night, you know, all nighters d- diving into PubMed, going down various rabbit holes, cross-referencing. And I'm, I'm, you know, I didn't take the academic route. So at first it was very difficult, but reading and reading and reading and reading, and then ultimately having the ability because of my journalistic background to reach out to scientists Mm. all around the world. I mean, it's given me exposure to this field in a way that um, very few people have. And also the 
the ability to see it from a 30,000 foot view because, you know, like medical doctors, they're really these days, like, you know, a lot of their education goes into pharmacology mm-hmm. and so true. PhDs, you know, they study on these really like niche areas of, of science, which, you know, we need both. Right. But for me, I was just coming at this like, okay, well, what do I need to do? Like, what, what's like, what, what are the high level, like clinical pearls that yeah. I can integrate into my life that are going to help me, you know, batten down the hatches and, and, and improve my odds. So as not to develop potentially not to develop what it is that she developed. And so that's really what it became, like the focus came, became for me. And then the more I would learn, the more I would feel compelled to share. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty much, I you mean, know, that's it, the it's, journey. It's funny. I, you just gave me a new perspective because we were talking on your podcast about, you know, how do you put a health puzzle together? What I just heard is that you approach it like a journalist. Yeah. It like, okay. And what, how would a journalist approach a health plan is they, they got to gather all the facts before they can put a story together. A hundred percent. It's, yeah. it's a really smart way because what to your to your mom, you know, what you said about your mom, we we definitely have a culture where you go in and then you just dump all your symptoms on your doctor and the almighty doctor tells you the, the issue. Yeah. And what we need to change to is you solving your own health puzzle, but you just gave me some context of let's do it from the journalistic lens. Yeah, 100%, especially for these kinds of chronic non-communicable Conditions. I was going to say lifestyle mediated. You know, I think I think there is a large proportion of you know dementia. Certainly, um, just generalized cognitive decline, possibly Alzheimer's disease. I'm not going to speak for these more rare forms of dementia because we just have so little research, and more research needs to be done. These kinds of conditions need to be approached from that standpoint. On the other hand, my father just had a total knee replacement on one mm. knee. That's the kind of condition where you go to a doctor, they do a, you know, they do an MRI, they do an x-ray, they see what needs to happen. They go in, they perform that kind of miracle surgery for that patient, right? And then it's like, it's like from one day to the next, you know, you have a new knee, you're walking around. That's not the case. And and I'm so grateful for that. Of course. But that's not the case for these kinds of like conditions that take years, if not decades to foment, you know? So what would you say in all your research is the root of dementia? What'd you discover? Well, there are there are myriad risk factors. They, these are multifactorial conditions, and and you know I think that from a from a dietary standpoint, I think the same. It's it's really not to overly simplify, but the same factors that are driving the epidemic of obesity, of type two diabetes, of metabolic dysfunction, maybe even of autoimmunity, of allergies mm-hmm. are contributing to, you know, to these conditions. I mean, we know that type 2 diabetes is a well-recognized risk factor. If mm-hmm. you have if you're a type yeah. 2 diabetic, your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease increases between 2 and 4 fold. Yeah, it's crazy. We know that obesity is a major problem, particularly visceral obesity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you came on my show and you were talking so brilliantly about the role of cortisol, mm-hmm. you know, in our health, chronically elevated cortisol. And we know that, you know, that the detrimental effect that cortisol can have when chronically elevated on brain structures like the mm-hmm. hippocampus. Yeah. Hypertension. That's another huge mm, one. Mm. Hypertension is massive. Yeah. One of the seminal studies we use in the field of dementia prevention is the the SPRINT MIND trial, which has shown that when people are, and this is using a pharmacologic agent, when people are aggressively treated for their hypertension, they see a dramatic risk reduction for mild cognitive impairment. Mm. But we know that diet and lifestyle, particularly actually exercise, can mediate blood pressure. We know that exercise is as effective as drugs. Yep. 
um, with regard to reducing high blood pressure. Yeah. So yeah, all, all, I mean, these are all, these are all modifiable risk factors, yes. right? I, I just heard, uh, I, do you know, Dr. Annette Boz? She does, no. she has a big YouTube channel and she's an internist. Uh, she and I have done a lot of collaboration together on just trying to get metabolic health to the world. So I was talking to her yesterday and she brought to my attention that they're actually now showing that the hippocampi of our teenage generation is shrinking because of our dietary processed foods. That it's literally, you can think about the brain as being soaked in sugar and soaked in, in, and in that as the brain is developing, the hippocampi is not developing to the same uh, size as you and I, or as our parents because of the processed food world. The ramifications of that, she went on to say that there were three major pieces to that, that when your hippocampi or your hippocampus actually starts to shrink, your reaction to stress changes. So you become less resilient, resilient. You, of course, your, your memory as you experienced, you know, with your moms with dementia is going to be off. Um, and your moods are going to be off. So, when we look at the at the the extent in which bad food has on our brain health, whether you're 16 or you're 65, to me, this is what has to end. This has to stop. We have to change that. And so I'm curious, in as you start to create a new food plan for your mom, what were some of the hallmarks? And then, you know, what did you see in her ability to communicate with you all? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing that I think is really important for people to understand is that dementia and particularly Alzheimer's disease, just because we have the most research there, these are conditions that don't, that don't begin overnight. These are, these take decades mm-hmm. to manifest. Agreed. And so my expectation for changing my mom's diet and then seeing some kind of like dramatic improvement in her symptomology, I had to, I had to curb my enthusiasm mm. there. And, um, and and also, you know, I don't want to say that I know for sure that it was my mom's diet. Like, we, it, you could do everything right and still develop. Mm-hmm. De- like, I don't want to like minimize the fact that these are very complicated conditions, yeah. and you know, we don't know everything. And um, and I don't want to like v- victim blame or of anything course. like that. You know, um, but I did try to. Uh, you know, improve my mom's diet in accordance with what I was learning at the time. So I, you know, I got rid of as best as I could, the refined grain products. And, you know, I swapped, you know, some of the more unhealthy oils for like healthy fats, which, you know, my mom loved to cook. So having a good extra virgin olive oil, it's like, that's like an easy swap to make. Yes. Oils are actually, I always say, if you, if I came into your house and I swapped out all your oils, like you wouldn't even know. Yeah. You wouldn't even know. It's so easy switch. But I grew up, you know, I grew up like during that era where fat was demonized. And certainly my mom is a product of that generation where in my fridge as a child, we had margarine, we had corn oil by the stove. We had all these fats that we don't, I mean, without, I don't even have to make any kind of crazy claims, which I wouldn't do anyway, but like, we don't know the long-term effect. This is a a mass public experiment. Like these oils didn't exist in the the human food supply prior to a hundred years ago. Right. So we don't know the effect of a chronic lifetime exposure to these highly easily oxidizable oils that they have on the brain. We have like, we have a sense of what they do to on one axis of one biomarker. And that's why they seem to get the green light from the medical establishment, right? Like LDL, cholesterol, ApoB, all that stuff. But the brain is made of fat. And so the kinds of fats we eat, I think are highly relevant to the brain. You don't even have to be a neuroscientist to know that, you know? Right. Yet the majority of the population doesn't know what you just said. Right. But 
Yeah. Why? I mean, that's where, you know, I, I find that we have to scream this from the rooftops because the doctors aren't necessary. Some are, but the, the, the system is not necessarily supporting something like, why don't you change your fats? You know, you're not, we're not get, being told what to do. We're being told what we have, but not how do we get out of it. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious when you changed like processed foods, like the carbohydrate load, how did she do with that? Because that's a, a tricky one when we look at getting away from the breads and the pastas and the cakes and the cookies. Was that, was that a hard Those one? Those are all the foods that my mom loved. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, growing up, I love them too, but... You, you have to, you have to lead by example and you, a person lives the way that they want to live. And it became clear to me, I, I became at the very beginning, I will admit, I became a bit of a zealot in my house and, uh, and tried to like get rid of all these foods. But I, I realized very early on, first of all, well, a few things, dietary change is hard. Mm -hmm. Dietary change is hard, harder for somebody with dementia. Mm. dietary change for somebody with dementia who is also developing, uh, or, or at least, you know, is, is, is further developing a, a sweet tooth because that's what they actually early on in, in the course of, of Alzheimer's disease, you actually like, you start to crave sweeter foods. Mm -hmm. And so that made it even, even more difficult. That, why do you think that is? Well, because one thing that accompanies um, Alzheimer's disease is a feature in the brain called hypometabolism, glucose hypometabolism. So the brain basically struggles to generate ATP from glucose. Okay. And so it's thought, we don't know, but it's thought that this is sort of like the brain's way of screaming out for sugar. Right. It's become like resistant. Its ability to generate ATP from, from glucose has been perturbed. Most people on the standard American diet are not allowing their bodies in any real capacity to enter ketosis. Ketones, I mean, the, the most relevant aspect of the ketogenic diet is that ketones provide an alternate fuel to the brain that the brain will happily oxidize. That's right. When present, like yep. in circulation, up to 60% of the brain's energy needs can be furnished by ketone bodies. Right. But if you're not in ketosis and you, your brain is struggling with, with hypometabolism, then it's, it's like, dying for fuel essentially right. that's that's yeah. that that's the story yeah it's you know that's the same thing with obesity it's so it's insulin resistance in the brain or the body when we look at those two two examples of of prevalence of conditions like somebody who's obese and is insulin resistant their cells are actually starving yeah yet they're eating all day long Right. And so I'm thinking the same thing with Alzheimer's and dementia is you've got starving cells that are not, even when you are eating, those that nourishment is not getting into the cell. So I look at the ketone as the detour. Is it kind of like around or a roundabout where we can get, even though this, the brain needs half of the, the fuel source to come from ketones, as we're trying to change the brain's addiction to sugar and the situation where it's insulin resistant, can ketones become that go-to source um, that gets the person starting to make better choices for themselves? Yeah, well, that's the idea. That's the idea. That's the reason why there's a medical food that's been approved by the FDA called Axona, which is essentially a ketone, an exogenous ketone supplement mm. based on medium chain triglyceride fats. Um, the work of Mary Newport is, Mary Newport's a, a physician who anybody with Alzheimer's in the family and, and, you know, spends a lot of time on the internet probably has come across her work. She famously, um, started giving her husband, her late husband, Steve, uh, medium chain triglycerides and saw mm. 
anecdotally a market improvement in his cognition as he was descending down the, the Alzheimer's path. And so, yeah, that is the idea that ketones can sort of keep the lights on in the metabolically ailing brain. Because the brain, the brain's ability to use ketone bodies is unperturbed, whereas its ability Mm -hmm. to use glucose is greatly diminished. And so if you're not providing the brain ketones and your brain is not able to generate the energy that it needs. But the issue is, well, first of all, all the the clinical research on this has been short term. And, you know, we see there's, there's some glimmer of hope in the research. I will say that. But you know, once Alzheimer's, particularly in the advanced stages, has progressed, you've got this amyloid burden in the brain that's right. con- contributing to the inflammation. There's the, you know, the uh, the rampant oxidative stress. There are all these like factors that like layer one on top of another that just make it, you know, it's it's a really difficult like it's not a cure, you mm-hmm. know. But I think particularly early on in the course, there is a glimmer of hope that that ketones can can help, which then. You know, I mean, supports this this the mechanism, like right. the like the understanding of like where Alzheimer's disease comes from, and and so the latest sort of or more more progressive thinking about it, outside of the the predominant amyloid hypothesis that has guided pharmaceutical inquiry for the drug for the condition for the past couple of decades, it's that it's a me- it's a condition that's largely metabolic in origin, mm-hmm. which I think checks Is out it- with so many aspects with so many other you know, of the kinds of conditions that we see now burdening modern society. Do you think that's accepted right now? That's that's the way doctors are presenting it to, to new dementia and Alzheimer's condition. As a metabolic? Yeah, as a metabolic problem. No, 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 it's not. I mean, I think um, it started as a, as a sort of niche um, focus for clinicians. And I think it's that's that's growing. Yeah. Largely because the amyloid hypothesis has been such a failure. Right. Right. And we see, we've seen that a lot of the data, especially over the last 16 years, that that hypothesis has been built on was, I mean, fraudulent. I don't know if you caught that. There was a um, an article, it was an expose in Science Magazine, that one of the seminal papers published in Nature that further cemented amyloid as like the cause of, of Alzheimer's disease was built on fraud. It was like this fraudulent. Wow. But yeah, the amyloid, it's like, it's a very druggable concept. It's the same, mm. it's for the brain, the analogy would be cholesterol, that like cholesterol mm-hmm. is this evil thing and we just have to like reduce Get the cholesterol yep. drug, you know, to like take statins and whatever. And and that cholesterol is the cause of of atherosclerosis, right? Like the, the, the it's like a perfect analogy, um, this amyloid hypothesis. It's a druggable, it's a, it's a, it's a boogeyman that we can yep. target and say, amyloid is the cause and we can create a drug we can create like these monoclonal antibodies that can reduce amyloid but the problem is that what seems to be the case is that amyloid is there it's at the scene of the crime we see these plaques in the brains of cadavers that have died from alzheimer's disease but what's the question that that has always needed to be asked first is what's causing it to be there right and so Maybe it's the hypometabolism. Maybe it's inflammation wrought by chronically high blood pressure and and like, you know, like little micro strokes that occur in the vasculature that supplies energy to the brain. So there's, there's all these other, you know, maybe it's like viral. Right. There's work being done out of Rudy Tanzi's lab at Harvard that, you know, shows that at least in vitro, amyloid aggregates around the herpes virus when you expose the herpes virus to, Fascinating. Yeah, to, the, to the brain's immune cells, that they start to upregulate production of this like amyloid precursor yeah. protein. So... Yeah, there's all these questions, but um, but I think because of the abject failure that has been this amyloid hypothesis, we've looked. Researchers have rightfully looked to set to ask like have asked like 
what's causing the amyloid. And so this metabolic theory, some have called it type three diabetes. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's been sort of yeah. like the the new growing kind of like cadre of scientists that are now like looking at that, which I think is very hopeful. Yeah. And and what also is surprising, well, or not is that it happens to women more than men. Yeah. Did you find anything along your path as to why that is? Well, as you know, I mean, estrogen is, is seems to be protective. And then yeah. in the in the post-menopause setting, it's like the rug gets pulled out from, yeah. from you know, beneath your feet, essentially. Um, and so that change, like that change seems to be problematic from yeah. the standpoint of the brain. Um, Was your mom on HRT? Did she was not. No, yeah. she was actually always afraid of of that. Yeah, well, I don't know much about it. Well, that, I mean, this is like hot topic news that just came out in the last like week or two. The New York Times put out a huge article saying that menopausal women are really struggling mentally right now, and they believe a lot of it is because of the study that came out showing that HRT actually made you more uh, prevalent for breast cancer and ovarian cancer. But now to your point on like how we're revisiting Alzheimer's and dementia, we're unpacking that study and we're seeing, wait a second, that was oral. That was an oral take uh, uh, HRT. But if we put a patch on, now we have a different response when we look at the patch. And then they're also looking at the sample size and saying, wait, we did this on women who were well into their menopausal years looking at this. But if we catch women usually in that transitional year between where they go from no from having a period to no period, or we catch them recently into menopause using HRT as a tool, the outcomes are much different. Hmm. So I, I think what I'm learning from just chatting with you right now is like, we're just revisiting all this stuff that we said were absolutes or, or going, wait a second, we need more resources. We have, and, and mental health coming out of the pandemic has been such a focus, all aspects of it. But now we're, we're zoning in on the menopausal woman and saying, gosh, she's suffering the most. What do we need to revisit? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And I, and th I don't know if this connection has been made to dementia yet, but I was recently looking at um, obesity statistics mm. uh, in this country. I think around the time when that, uh, when that physician made the claim that obesity was largely genetic because, you know, our genes haven't changed over the right. past 50 years, but obesity has nonetheless tripled. Yeah. So that, I mean, that argument that obesity is, is genetic to me just doesn't hold any water. But what was interesting, and if I recall correctly, I, I believe this is the case that earlier on in life, men are at higher risk of obesity, but later, later in life, you see a lot more obesity in women. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if it's because, you know, there, there, I think there is some evidence that, you know, women tend to eat, like men's and women's diets tend to be different and women tend to eat a lot more like sugary foods yeah. and like, you know, refined yeah. grain products and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know that in the context of menopause when, you know, estrogen you know, you're, you're becoming more insulin, insulin resistant. Estrogen, what is normally protective, right? Right. Yeah. Protects. You have the most amount of estrogen in your prefrontal cortex receptor sites and, yeah. and your hippocampus and amygdala. So when that's gone, that's, what's protecting those two parts of the brain when it's gone. Yeah. You're left with like a wide open wound. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm just speculating, but maybe it's like that kind of dietary pattern that's sort of, uh, you know, high sugar dietary yeah. pattern, particularly in the context of the postmenopausal women, yeah. woman, you know, might, I don't know, pull the trigger, so Could to speak. Be, yeah. you know? The other interesting part, and I'm sure you've seen this in your research is what part the microbiome plays in, in, in regulating blood sugar. 
Yeah. I mean, everybody's different. That's the thing. There was that right. seminal study that came out um, a couple of years ago that sent shockwaves down through the metabolic health community because it seemed to be the case that, you know, like a, a, a glucose curve isn't necessarily a glucose curve. Like you could, you know, somebody with a, with a different microbial signature in their gut could eat the same the same sh high sugar bolus. I forget whether it was like white bread. They always use the weirdest foods in yeah, these right. studies or like, yeah. you know, so or like orange juice. They use like orange juice or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Something like that, but like could elicit dramatically different blood sugar curves, yeah. um, you know, person to person, even in the context of metabolic health. And so, yeah, it seems to be the case that the microbiome mm -hmm. plays a large, a large role there. Do you believe in the glycemic index? Um, no, I mean, I think like, you know, in the, in the context of like a mixed meal, it, it has, you know, less relevance than, um, when you're eating a food in isolation, which yeah. is, which, which people don't often do. I think the more relevant marker to look at is like glycemic load, you yeah. know, just the, t the sum total amount of like glucose yield yeah. that a food or meal will, will give you. But I, yeah, I don't know. I have, I have like, you know, mixed feelings. I think, I think there definitely is value to minimizing glycemic variability just for if for no other reason than it's we see from the data that like your hunger is better like mm -hmm. your 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 subjective feelings of like hunger is better when you're when you minimize glycemic variability we also mm -hmm. see that very high sugar boluses have uh blood pressure implications which we know is not good transient well you know they've they've shown that actually a high sugar bolus can uh elevate systolic blood pressure for two hours Crazy. And can reduce testosterone for two hours. Crazy. They use like these oral glucose tolerance tests, which are like, you know, 75 gram glucose boluses, which is not, you know, most people are not going around chugging like 75 grams of glucose in one sitting, but we do tend to consume that amount of added sugar every day, your average adult. It's crazy. So, you know, I do think like from the standpoint of like, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in like f fitness and weightlifting. And I think resist resistance training is super, super important. And I think that there is value. Like I'm not anti-glucose. I'm not anti-carbs. I think there's value to, to, Agreed. to carbohydrates yeah. Agreed. when it comes to like exercise performance, yeah. you know? Yeah. I actually, um, I mean, this is definitely a little off topic, but I, I recently have, uh, begun, I, I, I don't like count calories or anything like that. But and I eat in accordance with like the parameters of like the foods that I know are most optimal for my for my brain and body. But I recently like decided to like see what it would take to like lose a little bit of like body fat, mm -hmm. just like cut, you know, six or seven pounds of like pure fat. Right. As like an interesting experiment. And one of the ways that I that I found was very effective for me to do it is and this is like controversial because I feel like when most people hear me talking about this they're probably like oh did you like dramatically cut the carbs well actually i kept my carbs pretty static and i cut a lot of the added oils and fats mm, in my in my mm. diet i'm not it's by no means like uh did i adopt like a low fat diet i'm still getting plenty of fat from like animal products and red meat that i think is like super super nourishing and important but the thing about fat that's really interesting um, for, and I'm, I'm speaking like temporarily for like a, just like a, a, a brief little, like, and in the, in the bodybuilding fitness world, like we call this a cut. So this is like, mm. not like meant to necessarily be long-term, but like fat is extremely added. Fat is extremely calorie dense. You know, you get the same amount of calories in a tablespoon of olive oil that you do in a whole apple and the apple is going to be way more satiated, yeah, for sure. you know, than yeah. like a tablespoon of oil. It's also like from a satiety standpoint, protein and fiber, you know, if you keep your protein and fiber up, fat doesn't really, you know, lend a ton of, of, of satiety benefit. And then also it's like, 
it's carbs, not fat that support your exercise performance, right? You know, from like the standpoint of the glycogen that you store. And so it was really interesting for me to just like titrate down a little bit, the dietary fat that I was eating. Um, and I saw like actually a big, like improvement in like my body composition. Do you think we became fat, a little fat obsessed when we became keto obsessed? Like, I I I think you're right. I think we thought the door into the ketogenic energy system was fat. Yeah, I think you're right. I think like, rightfully, a lot of us were just like really PO'd about the demonization of fat for so many years. Agreed. Um, and then, so what you ended up seeing was like this, like the pendulum swimming, swinging in the opposite direction where suddenly like everybody was like eating high fat, fat bombs. People were pouring oil on everything and butter on everything, which like I'm very pro olive oil and I'm even pro butter. I enjoy, I really enjoy butter, but yeah, it's just, it, it, that doesn't make a, a, a ton of sense either. And I think like what's important about like keto is that what determines whether or not you're in ketosis is not necessarily how much fat you're eating, exactly. but like where insulin is, Yes, right? Yes. It's like, it's the lack of exogenous glucose that turns up ketone production in the body. It's not that you're yeah. eating so much fat, you know, like you, you go into ketosis when you're fasted, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you're not yeah. eating any fat. And you're not you're eating anything. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's been really interesting to like, uh, kind of even challenge my own biases in that regard, right. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think where where fat became this hero is it stabilized blood sugar. So then we were able to move into this ketogenic energy system much easier. So even if we put fat like the zone diet, you remember the zone diet? Yeah. It was like put fat with everything and it stops the glucose spike. And what that allowed us to do, we didn't realize, is it also allowed us to switch in and out of these two metabolic energy systems that we have. So, but then everybody was like, oh, I just eat fat all the time. I should just eat that. And then we ended up with a consequence of that, to your point. Yeah, 100%. So I got to share with you all something that's been really burning on my heart recently, and that is the mental health of women. Now, we've heard a lot in the news about coming out of the pandemic, how so many of us struggled mentally during that process. But the part that's not being highlighted once again is the impact it's making that poor mental health is having on women. Now, I recently read a study or an an article that said that the most common time for women to actually commit suicide is the decade between 45 and 55. And when you look at what happens to a woman's brain during that time, it's the depletion of hormones leading to the depletion of neurotransmitters that makes our brain so much more reactive to stress, which is why I am always looking for natural products that we can add back in to improve our mental health. And I have found one. And it's put out by Cured Nutrition. It's called Aura, and it is packed with prebiotics, adaptogens. And what they did that's so cool is that not only are those adaptogens there to help your brain, to nourish your brain so it can rebalance itself, so it can calm itself, but they put those darn prebiotics in there to help support healthy gut health allowing you to make and grow those bacteria that give you neurotransmitters like GABA that calms the brain and dopamine that makes the brain happy and serotonin that just tells us everything is going to be okay. So Aura is very effective when you take it with healthy fats. So for those of you that are fasting with me, if you are breaking your fast with fat, it would be a great time 
to add in for uh, at that breakfast meal. And right now, Cured is extending an exclusive exclusive offer to you all, um, and that is 20% off. That rocks. Thank you so much, Cured. And so you can just go to curednutrition.com forward slash Pels and use the coupon code Pels, P-E-L-Z, at the checkout, and they will give you 20% off. Once again, it is Cured Nutrition. I'll spell that for you. Cured, C-U-R-E-D. Nutrition, N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N.com. And then there's a forward slash, and then there's my name, Pels, P-E-L-Z. And if you use the coupon Pels, you will get 20% off. So I'm always excited to pass along great products to you, but literally any product that's going to help you with better mental health is a game changer for your life. So I'm so excited to bring Aura to you. And as always... Let me know how it works for you and cheers to happier days and happier women. We all thrive. The planet thrives when women are at their best. Yay. Thank you, Cured Nutrition. So you, one, one thing that's really interesting about your story around your mom is that you turned to food primarily to heal her. Is that correct? Yeah, food. And then you in in the Genius Kitchen, which is a great cookbook, by the way. Uh, I, Thank you. I really I enjoy the I love a cookbook that teaches me in the front end of it, and then it gives me all the recipes at the yeah. back end. So, and when I read it, I actually was like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't." It's, this book needs to get to everybody because you you lay out like, "Here's what you need to know about dairy. Here's what you need to know about the fats. Here's what you need to know about spices and vinegar." It's just so well said. But what you did that shifted my perspective is you had this idea that we are culinary illiterate. We are are food illiterate. So when you look at a conversation like we're having right now, my brain goes to, well, how are we going to solve that problem? Because we can't just stand up and go eat this, not that. We got to get you to understand food. We got to get you to understand the ingredients. And then we got to teach you how to freaking cook it. How are we going to solve that problem? Yeah, well, I mean, back when I started the journey with my mom, um, I was really frustrated by the lack of health literacy that that I had, that she had. Yeah. And over time, as my mom continued to decline, it became clear that one of our favorite pastimes together, one of our favorite ways to bond, cooking together, mm. became difficult to do. And so I had to take the the that mantle in my house. I took the mm. reins for for being the sort of, you know, the head chef of my house, so to speak. And I realized at that point that that culinary literacy was something that I was lacking as as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, I think it's important for people to, to realize that our hunter-gatherer ancestors had to be self-sufficient. Mm. At a certain point in our human traje- trajectory, we, this notion of specialization became mm. the way that, that, you know, society was built, right? We, we became, we went from being like, you know, hunter gatherers to being settlers and we domesticate, started domesticating animals and crops at that point, but we've lost something in that process. And so, you know, now we outsource, I mean, we outsource our financial literacy, right? Like, I mean, every time tax season comes around, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I have to pay somebody to help me like get us a handle, you know, on this as a small business owner. And, um, and it's just incredibly frustrating and culinary literacy, like there's so there's so many aspects of like life that we just like outsource and we don't think anything about it. So true. But 
just knowing how to cook, like even the most basic things. I mean, it's so empowering. First of all, there's something really ancient about knowing how oh, to cook, yeah. Oh, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like knowing how to cook like a steak or a burger or even a salad or, you know, like really basic things like med- good Mediterranean style cooking, which we know is yeah. associated with better, better health. I think it's like it doesn't have to be difficult. And yet mm-hmm. like the dividends that it pays you to know how to just make simple things in the kitchen. So true. Like it's, it's an expression of love. Like, yes. you know, when you were on my show, you were talking about the value of like oxytocin, right. And connection. It's like, there's no better way than like cooking for loved ones yeah. than, you know, to boost oxytocin. And it's just like, to me, like the, the amount of value that I get from that, first of all, anything that you cook at home is going to be healthier than anything you get out at a restaurant, even if it's the exact same thing. Explain that for a second, because I think people don't understand that. Because if I, even if I go to a high-end Michelin rate, you know, rated restaurant, I'm not guaranteed to get all clean ingredients. Yeah. Well, this actually ties back into what I was talking about, uh, about fat and like fat loss. Like no matter like what restaurant you go to, the vast majority of dishes that you get in a restaurant are going to be served with innumerable phantom useless calories because restaurants love to soak their food in oil and, and yeah, butter, right? So true. And, like, the, and the bad oils. And the bad oils. Yeah. 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 You're probably not even getting butter. You're probably no. getting like, you know, these unhealthy oils. Probably. Like, I mean, uh, fried foods are the obvious first worst offender, but like even roasted vegetables are usually covered in these unhealthy oils, right? Sauteed yeah. spinach, things like that. Like you're in a restaurant, you're just getting a ton of like empty fat calories, essentially. You can make the same food at home and you're, you know, getting higher quality fats generally. Like if you're, you know, listening to your show or my podcast or reading my books, like, you know, to be using extra virgin olive oil, which has a bounty of evidence on it, on it, you know, speaking for its benefits, you're going to get, you know, you have like greater control over the food quality, like eating out in restaurants, you know, it's all going to be farmed salmon, factory farmed meat Mm. for the most part, you know. Um, you can, you can have a little bit of control, like, and now it's, it's easy and cheaper to, or easier and cheaper to get high quality meat. You know, like I know even Walmart now has like grass fed, right. It's getting there. Photos. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's I was at Target there. the other day. Target. And, and, I was just going to say. say, you could find like lean, you know, grass fed, grass right. finished ground beef, organic too. Like it was amazing. Yeah. But, so. uh, but to the illiteracy part, and this is again, why I love the cookbook is that you break down, well, what is grass fed? What is, you know, you, like we don't have enough knowledge on that. So let's use salmon as an example. Every time I go out to eat, I always ask, is this wild or, or farm, farm raised? Yeah. And most people aren't doing that. They're like, oh, salmon. If they even got the connection, they'd be like, omega threes, I need more omega threes. Let me eat salmon. But we aren't asking about the quality of, of that salmon, which yeah. makes going out even more dangerous because we don't know. You have to dig deep to understand the quality of the ingredient you're getting. Yeah. I mean, restaurants are no, the margins are paper thin at, yeah. at restaurants. So they yeah. cut corners and they use, you know, the, the quality is not amazing. But I, I you know, I, I eat out. So I don't, I don't want to uh, pretend that I, yeah. I yeah, full, yeah, full transparency, Yeah, but I like my kitchen the best. Yeah. A hundred percent. So that's kind of like a, a rule that I have for myself that maybe this is useful for your audience. Like I take to take the pressure off and to not drive myself crazy and to enjoy life. Right. Like, cause that's, it has to be yes, enjoyable. Like agreed. I don't really, fo- I don't really, you know, I try to like go, you know, when I'm in restaurants, I'll do the grilled meats and things like that. But when I'm the foods that I bring into my kitchen, like generally I have like rules about that. Like I want my 
beef to be grass fed, grass finished. I want yeah. the salmon or whatever fish to be wild, you know, no grain and seed oils in my kitchen, only extra virgin olive oil, butter, maybe some avocado oil, macadamia nut oil. These are all, you know, very good options compared to, you know, the industrially refi refined oils. And I think that's, that's the way to do it, to, to welcome high quality ingredients into your kitchen. Because when you have high quality ingredients, you see very clear, very like you can easily see that it's not about quantity. Right. You know, I think a lot of people, especially novice chefs, get like overwhelmed that like I'm going to need all of these different like ingredients and it's, it's going to cost me an arm and a leg with a good high quality salt, pepper, garlic powder, extra virgin olive oil. I mean, there's so many things you could do. Right. You know, like those are like literally the thing, the staples that I use in my, in my kitchen again and again and again. And then it becomes like, okay, is this going to be, am I going to cook beef tonight? Am I going to be cooking chicken, fish? You know, do I have like a bowl of greens to prepare? That's it. And then you just use the same ingredients, like, you know, again and again, you don't have to complicate things. I think that's the the problem is that many people like think that cooking has to be this like complicated yes. gastronomic experience. It doesn't like Mediterranean. If you go to Mediterranean kitchens, the great Mediterranean kitchens of the world, they're using you know, a tiny quantity of, of ingredients. It's just that the ingredients that they're using are very high, high yeah. quality. Oh my gosh. And and you don't eat as much when yeah. they're that high quality. Um, it reminds me of uh, my husband. And I used to own a winery many years ago. Wow. And one of the things that we learned in the winemaking process is that really the art is picking the most amazing grape and not messing with it. Mm. Like trying to keep it in its full essence. Don't put all the additives and all the things in there. Once you do that, you've changed this incredible uh, thing that nature has provided you and you've you've manipulated it, which is going to change the taste, but it's also going to change the way you feel when you're drinking it or how you feel after it. And what I just heard in that is like, let's go back to just, if you were setting up a kitchen today, let's just get high quality ingredients in there that you're going to use over and over again. You're just not going to need a lot of them because they're so high quality. Yeah, that's it. I mean, salt, uh, some of the staples that I think are really important for any chef to have high quality salt. And actually I think it's valuable to have, um, there are three different kinds of salt that I think are very... I was going to say, yeah. high, who, who knows what high quality salt is? I can't yeah. wait to hear what you're going to say. Yeah. I mean, I like sea salt. There's, a, you know, some people are probably familiar with the studies that have shown that sea salts contain microplastics. You know, you can go for, I like, I enjoy real salt, which is like from a company. I have no, no financial affiliation with them, but it's like from a underground Utah mm. dehydrated lake. But pink Himalayan pink salt, I think mm -hmm. is a good option, but I, I use sea salt too. I think sea salt is, is, you know, still fine. Why wouldn't you use iodized salt? Like if I'm at like a restaurant and there's a little salt shaker there, Yeah. why would I not want to use that salt? Well, you know, I mean, the fact that it's iodized does provide a, a public health benefit. A lot of people don't consume mm. foods rich in iodine. We don't mm -hmm. eat much seaweed anymore. A lot of people are, you know, I mean, seafood can be cost prohibitive for many people. Um, so iodine is really important and we don't want to, you know, we don't want to foster iodine or encourage iodine deficiency, but iodized salt tends to have a bunch of like anti-caking agents in it, yeah. dextrose, yeah. um, things in it that generally like, I don't want to, you know, use in my house, you right. know, it's like, that's not, it's not, um, it's just too processed. Right. right? I like would rather eat foods that are high in iodine than rely on like, you know, the, you know, some kind of like industrially produced, yes. uh, thing. Um, but that's not to say that like using a little bit here and there is bad or that like it hasn't been a net positive for society. Like it probably has been. Um, 
but you know, I, like in my house, I want to use like a higher quality salt and the, and the salts that I really like to use, you're not going to find them iodized. Like right. I love having a good flake salt mm. on hand, mm. like uh, Maldon, which is a brand, huh. but you can find it anywhere. Zero financial affiliation. All the great, you, like to me, like you can't have a steak without Maldon salt. It's like that crunchy finishing salt that you throw yeah. on. And that's the whole point of it. It's a finishing salt. You don't use it to cook with. It's hard to measure because the granules are so large and, you know, and uh, inconsistently shaped. That's part of the appeal right. from a finishing standpoint. Yeah. Coarse salt and then fine salt. Those are the, t- the two other salts. So you, 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 I didn't check your kitchen out when we came in, but I'm thinking you had a variety of salts going yeah, on. Yeah, I've there. got a variety of salts. Yeah, it's, it's generally a texture thing. Like fine salt mm. is the easiest to measure. Mm. So you use that in recipes, yeah. right? Uh, coarse salt, also known as kosher salt, is generally the best kind of salt to use to salt to salt meat with to salt like a steak mm, with mm-hmm. it's easy to um basically create like an even distribution on the surface of uh meats with yeah and then um flake salt is like your finishing salt yeah ideally you want to have all three in your kitchen they're not i mean salt is not expensive no so no. and it changes the whole taste so it's dramatic yeah that finishing salt is actually one of the least expensive ways to really up level your cooking Because it just like makes anything that you use it on, whether it's eggs or steak or fish or even like salad, it just like up levels like the quality, like the, the, you know, the, the, the sensory perception, the taste, everything. And it's relatively inexpensive. Where does spices, because you also have a whole section on spices in there. Um, And when we look at the, going back to the microbiome conversation and, and just putting this in the context of helping metabolic health that contributes to all these diseases, spices are a prebiotic. Yeah, they are. They're potent. They're, I mean, spices are they're some of the most concentrated source of uh, polyphenol right. compounds. You know, you find them like very concentrated in spices. Polyphenols and these so-called plants defense, defense compounds that actually to us mm. provide a hormetic benefit, they tend to have strong flavors. They tend to be bitter. And they're bitter because, I mean, they're meant to ward off critters, like yeah. smaller, you know, prey from gnawing at the leaves of these plants, you know, that, right. that generate these compounds. But from a culinary standpoint, we enjoy that, right? It actually, it adds these very unique flavors. And that's why a little goes a long way with regard to spices. Yeah. And so whether it's oregano, turmeric, garlic, like they're rich in bioactive compounds. And the vast majority of these compounds, in fact, haven't even been studied. You know, right. we just, we just know that they're <laughs> so beneficial. True. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. We just, we know that they're beneficial. People that eat sp- spicier food tend to have um, reduced risk of early mortality. We just know that there's all kinds of bioactive compounds. I mean, there's a lot of research on turmeric and how beneficial that is, partly because of the uh, curcumin that it contains, which is anti-inflammatory. We know ginger is beneficial. We know garlic is been, But, you know, it's like some researcher or some group somewhere has been able to find the money to study these unique compounds. But that's not to say that one is healthier than the other. It's just that, you know, that's where the, the research goes. So in general, you know, variety is key. Like yes. it's, it's, you, you can do a lot with a small handful of spices, but generally like spices in general are very beneficial, whether yeah. it's like, you know, cinnamon or uh, cardamom. I mean, they all, they are all bioactive and, and all probably have benefit to some degree, antioxidant and otherwise. The other interesting thing I thought is that you put in there about vinegar and I was like, oh, nobody talks about vinegar. Like, you know, there's a whole world of vinegar to understand, just like to understand oil. Where do you use? I mean, I only think of vinegar when I think of a salad dressing. I yeah. make my own salad dressings. Yeah, no, vinegar is amazing. I love like all kinds of it. It's one of my favorite flavors. So I had to pay homage to it mm. in the book. Um, 
Yeah, balsamic vinegar is great. It's um, made from grapes. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know, it's got a little more sugar in it, but I don't, I don't mind. I think that there's benefits to the polyphenols that you get mm-hmm. in balsamic vinegar that you won't find elsewhere. Um, apple cider vinegar is great. White vinegar is useful. Um, generally, yeah, I mean, you can use it in salad dressings. You can also uh, use vinegar and extra virgin olive oil as a topping for a steak. It's the, it's like a yeah. Tuscany method of like eating steak. A little bit of balsamic vinegar, a little bit of, of olive oil goes great to top a ribeye with. Yeah. Um, or even like a leaner, you know, actually, uh, probably you probably want to use that with like a leaner steak too. You know, the, the olive oil adds like a really nice, like unctuous flavor. Um, there you can like reduce it and, and like saute mushrooms in. Um, I love to like make portobello mushrooms with a mm. little bit of balsamic vinegar. Uh, yeah, there's a, the, there's a ton of uses. The, the mu- so again, when like I, we look at all of these ingredients, there's like the taste upside and then there's the health upside. Yeah. So when I look at like, you know, we talked about sodium on your, on your podcast and the need for adding in sodium um, and what it can do just for overall, you know, health and, and muscles specifically. When we look at the spice, well, we know we've got to feed these microbiomes. So how are we doing it? Like most of the world has this monoculture of microbes that are af- adversely affecting them. Then we come over and we look at vinegar, even though everything you're saying is like, oh, incredible taste and how great that's going to be on top of a steak. But we know things like apple cider vinegar are great for regulating blood sugar. And then we come over to the the mushroom discussion. So this is my newest fascination because... It, did you see Fantastic Fungi? Yeah, so good. It's so good. And the visuals are so good. But what I think of when I'm d- the eating mushrooms is that especially if it's a good high quality, like a lion's mane mushroom, we cook a lot with that, is that it's actually going into the brain and creating neurogenesis. Yeah. There was a new study. Um, I think it might have been in, in mice, but I saw it pop up recently that um, you know, just further supporting lion's mane as a neuroprotective compound able to boost like nerve growth factor and and things like that i love lion's mane it has the texture if people haven't tried fresh line i mean you can get it as a supplement but if you haven't tried it as a as a fresh food it's so good i mean a lot of farmers markets now you can find it it has the texture and taste almost of crap it's amazing and it's big it looks like well for starters it looks like a brain yeah do you do you believe in that theory that if if a food like a broccoli looks like a brain a walnut looks like a brain lion's mane looks like a brain yeah it does so therefore it should be good for our brain what's it there was a yeah man the name of that theory i forgot it was super interesting but yeah like that things that look like one another benefit one another i don't know if there's any if there's any like scientific merit to that but i you know it, it if it if it makes you more inclined to reach for these kinds of foods then like i'm all about it right. you know like whatever whatever is going to like help cement those those healthy habits and yeah lion's mane is like it's super tasty it's easy to integrate like yeah. people have this like misconception that health food either is boring or is bad so and, true and it's like that's neither that's couldn't be further from the truth yeah you know like to me Health food is delicious because like there's this innate intelligence in the body that when you're eating something that's good for your body and brain, like your body thanks you. It yeah. thanks you either with like, you know, dopamine, like yes. reward chemicals in the brain, um, makes you feel better yep. after eating, you know, after eating the food. It's like, to me, it's like, yeah, it's like, that's like some of the, that's like the best aspect of like being a, a, a health aware eater. Yeah. 
So. Well, I like the way you said that. I never thought of that as health-aware eater because yeah. as you and I have talked about today, we all like to pick sides. I'm a vegan, I'm a carnivore, I'm this, yeah. I'm that. Um, what's your stance on variety of foods? Like, do you feel like there's one food style that's that's best for the brain? Um, or is there certain ingredients you want to make sure you do every day for the brain and certain ingredients you don't and whatever style that fits into, go for it? Yeah. I would say that um, I, I definitely think that omnivory is best for the brain. Mm. I think that integrating both plant and animal products is ideal from a from a cognitive and mental health standpoint. I mean, people have different preferences about what animal products, for example, they like. Some people have ethical reasons to avoid certain animal products. Um, but for me, I think it's it's optimal to in, include a, a range of animal products and and plant products. Yeah. People are going to have differing sensitivities, allergies, and things like that. And so that, this is not an, a one-size-fits-all recommendation. But just some foods that I think are, are really um, beneficial from the standpoint of the brain I mean, fatty fish, you can't get around that. The fact that like salmon, wild salmon has, you know, an abundance of omega-3s, probably the most concentrated source of omega-3s, yeah. you know, in the modern supermarket that that your average person is going to have access to. I mean, that is a non-trivial like data point. So There's salmon- a lot of research on that one. Yeah, yeah. a lot of research on that. Um, I think the research now on, on the, the potential cognitive benefits of grass-fed, grass-finished beef or just mm. beef in general- are starting to come out. I mean, for many decades, we've been told that beef is just bad, you know, that right. it's associated with every negative health outcome. But newer research is challenging that dogma. I mean, there was mm -hmm. the Nutrarex consortium came out a couple of years ago that, um, you know, these experts, this, this international panel of experts found that there's no solid evidence to say, like, there's no convincing evidence to say that we should be reducing our red meat consumption. Yeah. Like, it didn't consider the environment. It didn't consider all of these external variables. All it did was look at the data on red meat and health. Mm -hmm. And so from a health standpoint, there's no convincing data to say that we need to reduce our red meat consumption, mm -hmm. right? Well, and so what do you say about something like the China study? Well, there was the book, The China Study, and then there yeah. was a study that The China Study was based on. But both – well, the book was written by a well-known – person with a, a bias towards veganism from the standpoint of activism. And then the study was observational in nature. And so mm -hmm. I wouldn't hang my hat um, right. on that. First of all, A, it's it's old, like study. I mean, the, the timeline in which a study is performed, I think, still has, especially if it's observational in nature, yeah. um, has some bearing on, on but the... But it's the lowest. I mean, if we say on studies, observational is of the lowest validity. Yeah, because it's not... It, it can't it can't determine cause and effect. Right. Right? So there's that. Um, and we have lots of other... I mean, if there's anything that you... That, that like nutrition research has shown us is that like there's... The, the controversy tends to stem from the fact that all of these studies are equivocal. You can find a study to validate so anything perspective that you want to have. You can so find true. studies that link red meat to cancer and heart disease. You can find studies that studies of studies that show that there's no consistent yep. relationship that red meat has with heart disease or cancer. Right. And so. How do you make sense of that? Well, you defer to reason. Right. You know, these are the kinds of foods that are, you know, they're not the identical kinds of foods that our ancestors ate, but they're 
they're as close as we can um, reasonably get in the mm -hmm. in the context of the standard food environment to the kind of diet our ancestors likely consumed during the vast majority of our of our evolution prior to the appearance of you know all of the kinds of chronic non communicable conditions that people are now struggling from. What do you say to the person who wants to be vegan or plant based for ethical reasons? Is there anything nutritionally they're they're missing out on if they're if they're taking meat out of their diet? Well, yeah, I mean, vitamin B12 is certainly, um, you know, a concern and, and most vegans, vegetarians will uh, end up supplementing with vitamin B12. But, you know, this is a conversation that I think like it illustrates this concept of nutritionism where it's like we try to break down as humans. I mean, we try to like break down everything into its constituent parts so that we can better understand. Right. right. And I think that's like one of the most amazing things about about human ingenuity. But I think it does us a disservice, um, particularly in the field of nutrition, because food is so, there are so many compounds in food that mm. we've co-evolved with. And so trying to break food down to its constituent parts and say, okay, if I cut out this entire food group, what are the nutrients that I'm going to need to replicate, you know, like that right. food group? What you end up getting are products like Soylent, which is like, mm -hmm. a, I don't know if you've seen that, but it's like this like protein shake where these tech Silicon Valley types decided to see if they could recreate the perfect human food with just a couple of vitamins and minerals and protein and like recreating this completely synthetic thing mm. that they purport that, you know, have all of the, but to me, that's like that you're setting yourself up for failure. Right. Like we've evolved with food and we don't know, we, there's no way to know. Right. Like all of the many compounds in those foods that we are handicapping our bodies by suddenly removing from our so diet true. completely, you know? So you're not going to be 3D printing any food anytime soon? No, I don't think so. I mean, like from a from an essential nutrient standpoint, it's vitamin B12, right? But And, and probably omega-3s. We know mm -hmm. that preformed omega-3s, which you find only in animal products, are the most ideal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so vegans and vegetarians are probably well suited to supplement with, al you know, algal oil, mm -hmm. um, which is preformed DHA fat primarily. But there are all kinds of nutrients in animal products that are conditionally essential that we don't know, you know, like we don't know. Maybe right. it's maybe creatine, which is found in red meat and fish, is beneficial to yeah. an aging population, particularly from the standpoint of brain health. Okay, so creatine is interesting because I feel like creatine is making a comeback. Yeah. Like everybody's talking about creatine lately, at least maybe on my on my social feeds. But I'm like, why is everybody talking about this? And now you've got me thinking that is it because we're we are in a bit of a protein deficit world? I think protein's making a comeback too. Yeah. Um, but what do we need to know about creatine and why is it why is everybody highlighting it, especially for brain health? So creatine is a we we synthesize creatine endogenously. We make creatine in our own bodies. Mm. Like red meat is rich in creatine. We are red meat. So we're right. our we our meat is are rich. Are, are we dark? Are we light? Meat? Yeah, we're 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 red. I mean, we're, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're like if you were to like you know open up the human body, like we look like I mean mammalian meat. Like it's, it's red, you know. Yeah. And so our muscle tissue is rich in creatine, which helps to support energy synthesis, particularly during high intensity uh, bouts of exercise or activity. Um, but creatine is also a really important nutrient in the brain where it supports brain energy metabolism. Mm. And we see that people who are on um, vegan and vegetarian diets from, you know, granted there's not a ton of research on this, 
Um, and the research that's that's there is, you know, the studies are, are kind of small, but that when vegans and vegetarians who who you know don't ingest a lot of exogenous creatine supplement with creatine, they see an improvement in their cognitive function. Oh, wow. so yeah, so it seems to be the case that that it's a uh, conditionally essential nutrient that we don't. We're not going to develop a deficiency disease by not eating it, but that, you know, there are some aspects of our biology that are optimized. Yeah. Seems to be the case when we ingest creatine from our food. Yeah. We know that there's a, we know that there's a um, performance there, that there's like a, you know, a, an ergogenic effect, meaning like creatine augments exercise performance. That's mm-hmm. well established. Yeah. We know that it's good for both men and women, you know, provided you're, you're healthy, you know, like if. If you're healthy and you ingest creatine, you can expect to see an improvement in in gym performance. Right. You know various indices of gym performance. Um, it it will it usually coincides with a little bit of weight gain, but it's 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 drawn into the muscle. It doesn't make you look yeah, puffy. It's, it's like literally stronger. Like, yeah. Yeah. Do Do you think that there's a difference the way the human body takes in the actual food itself and something like like if you took in uh, well back to the lion's mane conversation if you took in the lion's mane mushroom by itself in comparison to a supplement does the human in maybe it's a microbiome issue does it take that in differently even though the the chemical components of those are te- technically the same yeah i would i would surmise that the answer is yes i mean we have some 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 data on various you know food compounds but the food matrix the food matrix matters it's one of right. the problems with ultra processed foods yeah is that these you know food you know these these components of food are extracted from the food matrix recombined and we see that ultra processed foods are you know one of the foundational aspects of the standard american diet that promotes obesity and type 2 diabetes metabolic dysfunction and the like and so you know what is what is so damaging about these ultra processed foods it's that it's that it's like you know it takes our body zero effort to assimilate you've got all these like different food compounds that are extracted from the original matrix and you know in that food matrix you get good stuff you get fiber you get water yeah like hydration yeah you get you know protein you get there's so many there's so many aspects of it i mean just the fiber alone like you can eat like the you can eat like a honey crisp apple which has i don't know 20 to 30 grams of of sugar in it right the fact that it comes with the fiber and the water that just slows the absorption rate of right. the sugar that's in the apple yeah. if you extract apple sugar you know for example in the in the case of apple ju- apple juice you've extracted the apple sugar from the food matrix and you see you're going to see a much more dramatic you know blood sugar spike it's fructose that the the rate at which it hits the liver is much mm. more accelerated. So we can't we can't isolate nutrients is what I'm thinking is what you know we can't the more man manipulates it yeah the more we risk not having the upside of the benefit of that food. Yeah. So you might potentially get a consequence and then you might potentially miss out on the benefit. Right. And the benefit sometimes is referred to as like the entourage effect. Mm. The entourage effect of these other aspects of food, right? Of the food matrix. Right. That like there's some benefit of consuming like all of these different, you know, compounds alongside the compound in question that have like a synergistic effect. It's not necessarily one plus one equals two anymore. It's one right. plus one equals three. Uh, yeah. And so when we look at putting together the optimal brain health diet, we've got, we've talked about the oils, we've talked about the protein. 
what if I'm, what if I am a vegan? What if I am not having this protein? You know, what do I need to know outside of some of the, the things we've talked about that I can lean into? Let me give an example. I interviewed a guy, um, Doug Evans. Do you know mm, Doug Evans? I do. Yes. He's actually a friend of mine. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. he talked about the, the protein component of a sprout. <laughs> we have, we definitely have divergent, uh, okay. nutrition, nutrition philosophies. That. Yeah. But I love, I love Doug. No shades of Doug. He's a, he's a, he's a great man, great person. Um, and I, I'm a huge fan of sprouts, but, uh, I do wonder where he's getting all of his protein from. I actually, I actually tasked cause I just brought him on the podcast and I said, I can go for everything that you're saying right now, but I want you to show me how you can build muscle with this. Yeah. And he goes, Oh, just watch me. This is my year. This is my year. I'm going to build muscle. And I'm like, okay, Doug, I'll come back to you in like six months. You do your sprouts. You try to build muscle because that's one of the things when we start to look at the differences in diet is that we start to see the breakdown of muscle when you're not having that animal protein. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm trying to get the data says that if you're on a weight training regimen, well, it says that regardless, the RDA for protein is insufficient for good health, that you should be aiming for at least 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. Um, if you're just like, just, just to like optimize your, your body, if you're sedentary, but if you're weight training, which everybody should be resistance training, yep. it should be more like 1.6 mm. grams per kilogram of body weight, which, which is double the RDA, which is really hard to get in. Yeah. It's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're talking about like optimizing the effect, the, you know, the effort that you're putting into your workouts. Right. right? And yeah. so, you know, you have to be like, you have to increase your protein. If you look at anybody like online with any kind of physique of note, like they're, you know, vegan or not right? or, or omnivore, they're slamming protein shakes and things like that. You don't necessarily need protein shakes. Um, but high protein food pr protein tends to be the most valuable, um, of the macronutrients. And it's especially valuable today. Yeah. Ultra processed agree. foods are, are highly protein depleted. It's one of the reasons why their margins are so high because protein is expensive. It's valuable for that reason, you yeah. know, but it's the best way to maintain mass as we get older, especially, um, in the context of, of anabolic resistance, as people get older, it becomes harder to maintain muscle. Yes. So, you know, women, men, past, you know, midlife, you definitely want to optimize for protein. And I think protein shakes can be incredibly valuable. And I just don't think that your average person, I mean, to, to me, basing your protein on sprouts is like a recipe for sarcopenia, you know, especially <laughs> when you're in like, you know, when you're, when you're in midlife or beyond, like, yeah, yeah. you know, but, um, but well, who, let's see, let's see what he does this year. That's I'm like, great, Doug, let's go. I'll give, him the, I'll give him the benefit of the, of the doubt, you know, and I, I love him as a, as a person oh, he's and he's very nice smart. Man. Yeah. And, yeah. He's, and I love sprouts and, yeah. you know, I had him on the, on, on the podcast, yeah. on my podcast recently. Yeah. So, Amazing. um, yeah. So if somebody, you know, we, we talked about a lot. So if somebody wants to like dive into really understanding food and how it relates to brain health. Um, you got a lot of resources. You got a lot of books. You've got a lot of social media channels. Where do, where's the door in in understanding what you're teaching the world? Great question. I think a great door in would be would be my cookbook Genius Kitchen, which is both a cookbook and yeah. a resource yeah. for people to understand the sort of top level clinical pearls as far as like my recommendations go. And then for anybody wanting to do a, a really deep dive, but still in an e easy to assimilate, easy to, to digest, no pun intended way, my first book, Genius Foods, mm. um, 
is a New York Times bestseller and it's a, a, a it's a nutritional care manual for the brain. Mm-hmm. I wrote it with a medical doctor who specializes in obesity medicine. So you get like the metabolic health aspect of things, but it's a really thorough odyssey into the role that nutrition can have in, in, in brain health. And also we go into therapeutics and like, if you're, you know, you, Mm. if you are struggling from, you know, whether it's, um, issues related to mental health or cognitive decline, it presents like the latest lay of the land in terms of what the evidence says about like how to tweak your diet for better, for better cognitive health. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. I'm going to finish up on our, my question that we ask every guest. Um, every year I theme my podcast. So this is actually our fourth season. And what I really wanted to emphasize this year was this idea of self-love and us all really accentuating our strengths. So my question to you is twofold. Do you have a self-love practice? If so, what does that look like? And what is like your superpower that you bring to this world? Oh man. My self-love practice, I would say, I, I love going to the gym. Not everybody loves going to the gym. Mm-hmm. I love going to the gym. And, you know, even if it's a 20-minute workout, I know it's better than no workout. And mm-hmm. and I just love to have that, like, me time. I've, it's been there for me since I'm 16 years old. I just love, you know, going and zoning out headphones or, or no headphones and just, you know, celebrating what my body can mm-hmm. do. I'm not an athlete. I don't have any kind of crazy genetics or anything like that. I'm not even, you know, I've never even been like all that strong, but I just love going to the gym and like practicing exercise. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, people talk about yoga as a practice. I mm-hmm. think like weight training is just as much a practice, mm-hmm. you know, you get better, you, you dial in your form over time. And, and I just, I love it. So that, 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 that's it for me for sure. And then my superpower I'm, I'm passionately curious and I, mm. I love to learn and I love to share. And yeah. so, you know, as I, as I learn, um, I've been lucky to, to be able to, you know, know how to present information and, and, you know, that's, that's a skill that I've honed over time, but, um, but I'm, I feel grateful to anybody that listens and pays attention to my work and, um, and yeah, so that that's I love me is that like, passionately con- curious. That's I'm going to start using that. I think that's a great way to look at. Yeah, because I always say I have an obsessive brain, but I'm now going to rephrase it as curious. I'm just passionately curious. I don't. I got to be honest. I don't think that I'm the first person to say it. I think um, there was like a there was like an Einstein quote or something. I think Einstein once said that about himself. I have no. I think I'm par- paraphrasing it probably, but it's like I have no special talents. I'm just passionately curious. That's I think that's great. what that's what Einstein said about himself. You know, yeah, amazing. Well, so. I can't. I can't wait to see where your passionate curiosity takes your information and we all get to benefit from it. So this was awesome. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you for this time. And where do people find you best? We, we've talked about your books, but where's your go-to spot? Yeah, so I'm on uh, pretty active on Instagram at Max Lugavere, and I host my own podcast called The Genius Life, which uh, which you are on. So I'm super, super excited to premiere that. Um, but yeah, the, the Genius Life podcast um, and then on Instagram. Beautiful. Thank you, Max. Appreciate you. you. Yep, likewise. Thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. I love bringing thoughtful discussions about all things health to you. If you enjoyed it, we'd love to know about it. So please leave us a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what your biggest takeaway is. 